Thanks, Matt. Do keep that passage open. Uh, you'll find that helpful as we go through. Jesus once said to the town where he lived, he said, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For the, if, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. See, to Jesus, the story of Sodom was not an ancient myth he could safely ignore, nor an embarrassing overreaction he could swiftly cover up. Jesus knew that the story we've just heard read was a divine danger sign. Saying to the people of the town where he lived in, if you don't turn to God for mercy, there is the dreadful reality of God's justice coming. Don't make the same mistake as the people of Sodom, he said. There are two themes that are woven through these two long chapters, the justice of God and the mercy of God. And our task as we study them this morning is, is to hold them together, to examine each of them, but to never pull them apart. Because on the one hand, we've, we need a fully biblical picture of God's justice if we're going to understand the reality of judgment. And on the other, we need to see his magnificent mercy if we're going to grasp and delight in the wonder and the joy of the gospel. So whether we're here this morning and we're con convinced Christian believers or, or not, let's pay attention to this divine danger sign. The lessons in these chapters are not light and trivial matters. They're matters of life and death, heaven and hell. And uh, we're going to explore them together. There are six scenes we're going to look at. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for your words, wonderful, wonderful word of the Lord. And we pray that by your spirit, you'd speak to us through these difficult and challenging chapters that we've heard read. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First blessing in the background, verses 1 to 15. We didn't hear these read, but you can just scan your eyes down as I, as I tell you the story. Abraham had obviously read whatever ancient version of Debrets he had to hand. He was a brilliant host. Um, he, he's visited by these three men. He's not really sure who they are. And he, he cooks them this wonderful meal. And then he stands in the background whilst they're eating it. And then uh, verse 9, Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is the same promise we've heard several times already in these chapters of Genesis. But this is the first time, I think, that Sarah, Abraham's wife, hears the promise from God's lips, not her husband's. And it all seems too much for her. She laughs to herself in the tent. What a ridiculous idea. She knows how these things work out. She's nearly 90 years old. God has other ideas, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. See, God is absolutely determined to keep his promises. Nothing is beyond his power. He's going to keep his promises to Abraham and even to his aged wife, Sarah. And through the son that's going to be born to them, more and more children until eventually a son who will bring blessing to the whole world. But of course the question is, does the world deserve that blessing? Verse 15, Sarah 
was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Remember the way the story begins. Adam is in the Garden of Eden and he, he hears God walking in the garden and he's afraid because he knows he's disobeyed God's word and he, he's naked and he hides himself and, and God says, where are you? He says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. Well, now, now Sarah tries to hide. She's heard God's promises. She laughs with cynical unbelief and she tries to lie herself out of trouble. It's the same old age-old story of sin. No one deserves God's blessing. Not Sarah, not Adam, not you or me. Over and over again, we turn away from God in sinful disbelief and disobedience. But our sin never erases God's promises. That's the wonderful thing. It even didn't for Sarah. I love this verse, Hebrews 11, 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Well, she didn't seem to consider him faithful when she sat in her tent and she overhears and she kind of laughs, a cynical laugh to herself. But presumably as time went on, she meditated on those words. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And she came to the conclusion, of course it's not. And she believed. So as we brace ourselves to witness the destruction of Sodom, let's not miss the truth that God's judgment is always set against blessing in the background. God is not a vindictive God. He's not always on the verge of losing his temper. He has a plan, a gospel plan to bless the world. And he calls on you and me to trust him in that plan, even as he announces judgment, which is what he tells Abraham to do. Trust me. Scene two. The Lord, the righteous judge. The Lord, the righteous judge. So God has just read Sarah's mind, And then he allows us, the reader, to read his mind. Verse 17. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So we get to see God thinking to himself. God's promise to the world to bless the world through Abraham is certain, but the obedience of Abraham's children isn't. And so God decides to tell Abraham his plan. As Abraham is going to look and witness the destruction of Sodom, he's going to learn God is the the judge, the righteous judge of all the earth. And he, he needs to remember that lesson. And as his children grow up and as their children grow up, He needs to teach them to his children and his household. So it's for you and me today, a right appreciation of God's justice, like we sang earlier, only a holy God, or we're going to sing that in a bit, actually, goes a long way towards motivating godly living. If if we live our lives under the watchful gaze of the holy, righteous judge, then surely that should motivate us to live holy, righteous lives too. As it says in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so God invites Abraham into his confidence. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. 
Remember earlier on in the story, Abel's blood, murdered by his brother Cain, cried out to God from the ground for vengeance. And now Sodom's sin makes a similar cry. But God is not going to make any hasty conclusions or pronounce a summary sentence. He's going to examine the evidence like a war crimes investigator, perhaps, before he executes justice. And so we meet the Lord, the righteous judge. God trusts Abraham enough to tell him what he's going to do, but can Abraham trust God? Verse 23. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham doesn't question God's assessment of Sodom. I guess their reputation preceded them. But like you and me, he wants to be absolutely sure that God's justice will be just. Butcher, Ukraine, Uvalde, Texas, Owo, Nigeria. We look at the, the news and we see injustice everywhere. And, and surely God is not going to add to that by sweeping away the innocent, the righteous with the wicked in the city of Sodom. Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And over and over again, Abraham goes, it's embarrassing, isn't it? He barters God down five at a time, ten at a time. It's funny and absurd if it wouldn't be so serious. It's an impertinent prayer to God to show mercy to Sodom. And if Abraham can pray like that, I wonder if we can pray like that too. We don't know anyone's heart, do we? But the God of all the earth does what is right. And our world sits under his judgment. That's what the Bible says. And so will we pray to God to have mercy on the world, appealing to his righteous character to ask him to judge justly again and again and again? Maybe we're praying for a friend or a family member, for our community or our nation or the world. If Abraham could pray like that, Surely we can pray like that too. But what is God going to find in Sodom? Thirdly, sorry, it's already on the screen. No one righteous, not even one. No one righteous, not even one. Chapter 19. So Lot has learned a thing or two from his uncle's hospitality. And he outdoes Abraham, actually. He, he is a square meal and a bed for the night instead of a night in the town square. He is persuasive. He's courteous. He invites these two men into his house. They're angels, but he doesn't know that yet. And then events take a sinister turn. Verse 4, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They closed in on the house. Now, maybe this is why Lot was so insistent that they spend the night with him, because he knew his neighbors too well. News spreads, the mob closes in, they make a dreadful demand. They call to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now, it used to be thought so obvious what this story is about, that sodomy became a euphemism for men having sex with men. But I do not think, actually, that homosexuality in particular is the specific sin that God, that provokes God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, listen to what Ezekiel said many years later. He said, Sodom and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. The Bible is clear 
that all sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is wrong. But events in Sodom are just a small piece of that teaching. Sodom's sin was spiritual, sexual, and social, especially according to Ezekiel. Well, maybe they wanted a consensual sex. More likely, I think, they wanted to rape these visitors. Either way, it is a, it's a horrific scene. It's sordid. And it's about to get even worse. Verse 7. No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing, Lot said. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. What? Well, maybe social etiquette demanded that, that Lot did absolutely anything he possibly could to protect his visitors. But I think the way he mediates with, his, with these neighbors of his, and the way that mediation kind of echoes Abraham's mediation with God to do what is right, it's pretty obvious what conclusion we're supposed to draw. Lot's behavior is dreadful. It's an inexcusable compromise. But is it any surprise that Lot behaves like this? Remember what we've learned about Lot. First of all, he pitched his tents near Sodom, chapter 12. Then chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. And now, chapter 19, he's at the city gate, which is basically the heart of the community. It's where they did business and justice and, and chit-chat. And of course, the sin and corruption of this city has rubbed off on him, just like it can rub off on us if we're too close to it. Well, this Father's Day, no one is going to take Lot as their model. There's no one righteous in this city, not even one. Or is there? Let me read to you what is one of the most puzzling verses in the whole Bible. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And if God rescued Lot... A righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I don't think Peter's read the memo, has he? Has Peter forgotten Lot's dreadful compromise? Surely he realizes there is no one righteous in Sodom, not even one. That is why God wipes the city out. Well, there's a puzzle. I'm just going to leave it unsolved for a moment. We're going to come back to it later. Scene four. The end is nigh. God shut the door behind Noah when Noah got into the ark. And now the angels shut the door of Lot's house. And finally, they make their identity clear. Verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Fact-finding mission complete. The clock hits zero. Sodom's fate is sealed. And there's only one thing Lot needs to do. Get out. Run quickly and he tries to persuade his sons-in-law and no doubt many other people who are listening in but but they assume he's like a man someone like this uh, on oxford street with a sandwich board what a crackpot i'm not listening to him but it's not 
a crackpot on Oxford Street saying the end of night. It's God who's saying it. What does Lot do? Verse 16. He hesitated. Uh, to use a, a recent political expression, he dithers and delays. And the angels had to grab him and his wife and his daughters and pull them out of the city. And they say again and again and again, run, run, run. But look at Lot. Isn't he absolutely laughable? Verse 18. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look. Here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. Well, first he hesitates to flee. Now he argues about the escape route. Lot's behavior is absurd, pathetic, and strangely comical. But it's more than matched by God's extraordinary mercy. First of all, verse 16, the Lord was merciful to them. And then, verse 21, God draws an exclusion zone around this little place called Zor. And Lot is safe at last. Safe from the terrible disaster that is about to unfold. Scene five. Hell on earth. In the beginning, God sent a life-giving rain on the earth. Chapter two, verse five. Later, he sent a life-destroying rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Chapter 7, verse 4. And now he sends another destructive deluge, verse 24. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. It's no earthquake, no electric storm or volcanic eruption. It's from the Lord out of the heavens. Destroys everything. Uh, interestingly, we're even told the vegetation seemingly to kind of remind us of the creation story. This is an act of decreation by the creator. And Lot, for all his faults, escapes. But his wife makes a terrible mistake. Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Well, lest we think that God is being a little bit harsh, let's just realize this is not a, a, an innocent backward glance in the rear view mirror. It's a deliberate di disobedience to God's command. God, the angel said, don't look back. Don't stop. See, Sarah, she struggled to, to believe God's promises, but Lot's wife, she just ignored the warning. And Jesus says that she stands as a warning to us today. Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I guess she didn't want to leave her old life behind. And don't we find that hard to do too? We cling to our sin. We, we love the world too much. We live according to our priorities instead of God's. But Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Judgment is coming. Verse 27. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain. And he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Jesus often spoke about um, hell in terms of the language of fire. But perhaps the most 
clear New Testament echo of this picture is found in Revelation, Revelation 9, verse 2. When the angel opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. See, the Bible insists that hell is a real place. It's a place of perfect justice. And it is a reality that we cannot afford to ignore. And it is a truth we should never speak of except without tears in our eyes. And yet, amazingly, it's a future that anyone can escape, even Lot. Verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. You notice the surprise? God remembered Abraham and brought Lot out. See, this is where I think we find the answer to that puzzle that we, that we looked at earlier in 2 Peter chapter 2. How could Peter call Lot righteous? Not once, but three times. Not because he's a good person in himself, but because of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's, what, it's the fact that God gives righteousness to whoever believes his promises. And on the one hand, Abraham had already believed the promises. And so Lot's rescue was in some ways an answer to Abraham's prayer in chapter 18. And doesn't that encourage us to to pray for people we know too? But Peter goes further than saying that God saved saved Lot for Abraham's benefit. God didn't just remember Abraham as an individual, he remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham that we've been looking at over recent weeks. That binding commitment to count whoever believes as righteous in his sight, no matter what evil they've done, or in Lot's case, suggested. Lot's behavior was not the cause of his righteousness. Of course it wasn't. Peter doesn't airbrush his sins out of the picture. No, Lot is righteous because Jesus is merciful to him. I think the only conclusion we can draw when we read Genesis 19 alongside 2 Peter chapter 2 is that Lot was a sinner and a saint. He's just like us in many ways if we trust in Jesus. Simultaneously sinners and saints. You see, sometimes we might be troubled by the sin we see in the world around us, but too often, like Lot, just in a little bit perhaps, we compromise with it. And, and then we get too cozy to sin. And we maybe kind of make compromises to kind of keep the mob away from the door. And then we need God to grab our hand and drag us out. So we believe that judgment is coming. But somehow, like Lot, we just don't take it as seriously as we ought to. We're sinners and saints. And see, this is how audacious the gospel is. There's no one righteous in Sodom, not even one, except righteous Lot. That sinner in that city, saved from hell on earth, not by his own merits, not by his own righteousness, but by God's mercy, God giving him the righteousness of Jesus. You see, God never ever sweeps away the innocent with the wicked. But he did it once. 
when he swept away Jesus on the cross. He's the Lord, the righteous judge. He always judges justly. Every time. Even and especially when Jesus died. God can save us from judgment because Jesus died in our place. Jesus knew that judgment must fall on this sinful world and so he willingly put himself in the way. He bore the full force of God's holy justice against all human sin and unbelief. He bore the punishment of hell in his body on the cross. And today he says to you and me, trust me as the saviour. I'm the only one who can save you from judgment. But he also, interestingly, says to us, like he said to the people of Capernaum, turn away from living your own way. Turn away from that and turn towards righteousness. If not, uh, the story's ignominious postscript just serves up one last warning. Sixthly and finally, and again, we didn't read this, but we're going to just cover it very quickly. Watch out, you reap what you sow. Watch out, you reap what you sow. Lot didn't think twice, did he, about handing his daughters over to the mob to the, for the mob's sexual gratification. But in the end, they're the ones who exploit him. Basically, they, they, there's no one to have a child with, so they get their father drunk twice, sleep with him twice, uh, talk about natural desserts, natural justice. He gets his just desserts. God is a great saviour. He snatches us out of the fire. He grants us righteousness through Christ, but we remain great sinners. And Jesus, the Bible says, watch out, you reap what you sow. The way we live our lives now determines our our character and our our future. This is the warning that Paul gave to the, the Galatian Christians. He said, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Don't we need both of those two things, the justice of God and the mercy of God? Without the justice, there's no hope for the world. All we can do is say, I just hope that I get through relatively unscathed. Without the latter, there's no hope for us. And, and, and let's remember as we finish that all this talk of God's justice is set against what we saw at the beginning, the blessing in the background. He's the righteous judge. He'll always do what is right. There's no one righteous for heaven, not even one, except Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might go to heaven. Thanks be to God. Let's live our whole lives for him so that we're ready. Don't look back. We're going to have time of quiet um, just to pray for ourselves, for others, and um, then we'll have our prayers.